my reading of history is that using language to solve conflict doesn't stick. That what sticks is mutual heartfelt action of some sort. That's Cameron Powers, and this is Well, That Went Sideways, a podcast that serves as a resource to help people have healthy, respectful communication. We present a diversity of ideas, tools, and techniques to help you transform conflict in relationships of all kinds. On this episode, we talk with Cameron Powers about building personal relationships across cultures through music and how that can be a helpful response to conflict. Cameron Powers was a world-traveling multilingual musician and musicologist. At the time we recorded this interview, he had stage 4 cancer. I'm Sam Fuqua, co-host of the program with Alexis Miles. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Sam. And we are so pleased to be joined for this conversation by Cameron Powers. Welcome, Cameron. Thank you, Stan. Your journey is far and wide. It's taken you so many places. And over many years, where does your journey begin? Quick trajectory takes me from the Missouri rural music education that I got from Chuck Berry and Ike and Tina Turner, because they were my popular neighborhood bands at the time. And I immediately went out at age 14 and bought an electric guitar. Then through the folk singing I did as a teenager and playing rock and roll and blues to Peru, where I learned the uh, Andean language and music of the Incas, to Greece, to Athens, where I lived uh, with my Greek wife and was totally immersed in that culture. And uh, then from there, to honor the wishes of the dancers and my own curiosity to Egypt, you know, I, I, I landed in Egypt and it is the magic world that people suspect that it is. And of course, traveling into Baghdad when that city was in flames to honor my Iraqi musician friends and, and exploring Syria and Jordan followed all of that. So that's a, a trajectory for you. Well, we certainly want to hear more about those places and those times. As your life developed as this idea of music as a a way of spreading peace and bridging cultures began to develop. Was there a, a kind of central idea in your mind, or was it just kind of going where the muse led you? It was a process of discovery. From the moment I walked into a village, three days walk from the end of the nearest road in Peru, and I noticed that all the villagers had fled because they were scared. They didn't know what to make of me and my girlfriend who were walking down their valley for three days. I pulled out my guitar and went into the village and played a song and they all came back and soon we were having a party and they weren't worried about me. All the way from there to uh, playing in uh, Egypt 
for 400 Egyptians at a village party, one of their favorite songs and the, the shock wave of love that went through all of us simply because I was bringing their music back to them as a gift, you know, made me realize, oh my God, I bet there's a lot of people in Cairo nearby drafting peace treaties, which are made with words and can be torn up and shredded just as fast as they're written. This connection here in Egypt that I'm making between me as an American and them as Egyptians is not erased. It won't go away. It can't be shredded. It can't be torn up. And that proved to be true. So Cameron, what is it about connecting through music as opposed to connecting through a piece of paper, a peace treaty, for example, that causes it to endure over time? What's happening between people when there's music? It's a pre-verbal place. It is language in the human evolution, which was a great gift for technological communication, but it's turned out to be very complicated for us people to use language uh, and stay connected to our heart and gut feeling centers. And frequently we, we make mistakes with words because we, as they say, people mistake the menu for the meal. You see what I'm saying, you know, you see a picture of a delicious looking hamburger and when you bite into it, if you're lucky, it'll taste exactly the way you expected it to. But you don't even really notice unless something is grossly amiss <laughs> because your taste buds don't even need to activate. You can eat the whole meal and still have just done nothing but eat the menu, your idea of that food. And you wake up later and you wonder, I wonder if that was a good hamburger. You know, it's like, I wasn't really paying attention. So we get short-circuited by language and music and dance and drumming. They're all rapid portals into the pre-linguistic places in our psyche. So are, are you saying that we can't really have real conflict resolution and conflict transformation if we stay at the level of language, that we have to go find a way into that pre-verbal space? Well, I, I wish I could offer more hope for the language approach, but I've been listening to an awful lot of audiobooks about world history lately and my reading of history is that using language to solve conflict doesn't stick that what sticks is mutual heartfelt action of some sort so i don't really think that the conflict resolution through words, it can be an entryway into the heart, but it's funny how you just can't rely on it. But when people get together and they 
dance to the same song and their bodies open and accept that telepathic energy field, then people suddenly burst into a smile and something has shifted. And the funny thing is you can put those same two people in the same room together, a different room together 10 years later and they'll instantly break into the same smile because something cosmic remembers that deep connection. So no, I don't have much hope for, for verbal resolutions. Sorry, I wish I did. I mean, I always felt like because everything is vibrating right at the subatomic level, that's why music, more than any other art form to me, has such power. Yeah. I was really impressed in looking at your website and doing some research for this conversation at the scope of these projects called Musical Ambassadors for Peace and Musical Missions for Peace. For listeners who aren't familiar with the work of these nonprofits, can you give us a, an overview and the origin? When I was uh, here in Colorado in 2002, and I could tell that my government, in the form of George Bush, was planning to bag my friend's capital city, Baghdad, in Iraq. And I had such gratitude in my heart for Iraqi musician friends who had taught me the rudiments of their music and encouraged me for over 20 years that I told Christina, I can't be in this country right now. So we flew to Jordan and we came back and we flew to Egypt as the bombing of Baghdad started. We went up to Jordan and, and um, I took the instrument that is beloved for Arabic music, my oud, and we arrived at the border of Jordan and Iraq where we were immediately told that only military, medical, or journal official people were allowed crossing. I started playing them an Iraqi love song and the Jordanian soldiers guarding the border, they looked at me and stamped my passport. You know, If you know that song, you can go wherever you want to. That's where family, tribal, musical, Connectivity is still really strong as in the indigenous Middle East. And so after singing love songs in Baghdad and coming back to America, the Egyptians found out and they, they flew us to Cairo to be part of a, a children's hospital fundraiser to sing in front of 60,000 Egyptians with all the other popular Egyptian pop stars, and we were on Egyptian TV, and they made a big deal out of how we were the Americans who invaded Iraq with music instead of weapons. And I came back to America after a while, and I told people here about it, and, and a woman said, I'm going to build a nonprofit around what you've been doing because she knew how to do that. I had never occurred to me to do that. But pretty soon she gifted us with Musical Ambassadors of Peace, as it's called now. And um, 
it's been growing wonderfully ever since. So really, that's how it got off the ground. Part of what I appreciated was there seemed to be uh, an effort to help children learn music and learn instruments, which I, I think is so important for kids all over the world to have someone give them a chance to connect with music in that way. Well, it goes one step beyond that, Sam, is when we encourage children to learn music, we make sure that we're encouraging them to learn their own indigenous music style. In other words, we're not setting up programs for them to learn to sing Italian opera in Damascus. We're setting up programs so that Iraqi refugee children in Damascus can learn Iraqi music. And we'll pay the Iraqi musicians to teach them their own music. Why is that so important, Cameron, that people learn their own indigenous music? Well, for a couple of reasons, but the most obvious is the legacy of colonialism, where European and American people frequently with good intentions go into other parts of the world, say, you know, Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, and they think they're bringing civilization, but they end up just burying the local civilization. And, you know, with all of the revelations about the Native American schools and the forced sterilizations and, and the forbidding of the speaking of native language, we can see that the era of colonialism has left a nasty black stripe across so many people that thought they were doing good in the name of Western European civilization. And so that's, that's a big part of it. But um, why is it important to teach the indigenous music? Because not only you are, are you stepping around the legacy of colonialism, but you're stepping toward those other people in other parts of the world and saying, you know, I think you're beautiful. I think your music is beautiful. And and I hope you keep playing your stuff because <laughs> I want to hear it. And other people are going to want to hear it. And I just know that your kids are going to feel empowered if they know that the music they're performing came from the heart and soul of their own culture. You have talked about the cultural traditions of the Inca, Egyptians, the Greeks. What can we who are steeped in Western culture learn from the cultural traditions of those, of those peoples? Beautiful question. The biggest lesson I took away from living in a Peruvian village and spending eight years learning to speak the Inca language was about fear. They simply didn't have time for fear. If someone was dying in the village, I'd say, oh, no, that's terrible. And they would look at me like I was crazy. And they'd say, terrible? No, it's, it's not terrible. I mean, we'll miss him, but it's not terrible. And I realized I was unconsciously bringing my culture's fear of death into theirs. And I, I thought, stop that, <laughs> you know? 
there's something much deeper to take away here. And then when it comes to lots of indigenous groups around the world that aren't as immersed in modern media and fear-based realities, then, then the uh, vibrational capacity for nonverbal communication is so much more developed and refined. Good example there is walking into uh, a shop in Egypt or Syria. And, you know, if you're not in a tourist zone where they're like hawking because you look like a tourist, then, you know, the first step is sit down, have a cup of tea. How's your mother? How's your father? How's your children? How's your family? And after 10 minutes of, of gentle politeness and sipping tea, okay, now what did you walk into my store for? And by that time, these people have figured each other out. Their vibrational telepathic connectivity has been wide awake with all of its little antenna and they know how to start about doing business or buying, selling something or opening up a, a, a friendship or, you know, a music lesson, whatever you're there for. But they don't jump into it with words. And when you walk down the streets in Egypt and Cairo, for example, uh, you know, people do have some command of English, although I worked really hard on my Arabic skills. It's really funny the way they can finish your sentences for you in their broken English because they already figured out what you were trying to say. How did they do that? Well, when your heart is that open as those people's are, you can feel things go in and out. Of course, love is, is the most beautiful feeling. How do we encourage both strengthening of indigenous musical cultures, but also an openness to other people's musical cultures? Well, Sam, the openness in children is going to be there. If they think music sounds cool, they'll want to learn about it and dance to it and feel it and hear it, no matter where it comes from. But when musicologists measure the uh, reasons that a human being will choose one popular song as an immediate favorite over another, the absolute number one criterion is that it be familiar. If it's a song they already have heard, then they'll like it immediately. So I don't think we have to worry about people being curious about other kinds of music if they're exposed to it. Um, and YouTube and a bunch of other, you know, social media platforms are kind of taking care of that. There's a lot more, you know, exposure to uh, music groups from uh, uh, Mali and, you know, uh, all over the world. 
I think you're right that one of the positive aspects of the internet ha- is the ability for anyone who's connected to to find music from literally anywhere else on the planet. My concern is despite those opportunities there's still this dominance of a kind of a western style pop music that is pushed because it makes money. Well, Yes, that'll go on, and we're not in control of that, Sam. We can be creative in some other realm so that other options appear, but to take on the corporatocracy, you know, personally is going to just make us angry, and then when we're angry, we don't function forever because we get burned out. So... When I dial into uh, TikTok, I hear lots of stuff from all over the world, you know, presentations of history, both recent and ancient, that are from very diverse points of view, and music and dance from lots of parts of Mongolia or who knows where. So... I don't think it's worth spending our time and feeding off our frustration to fight the colonial legacy and the dominance of popular music when we could be spending all that time with our love energy, getting to know some people from Afghanistan and saying, hey, I want to learn your music, let's sing together. That would be a better way to spend your time. And then if someone makes a video of it, then it'll go out on some social media and the world can discover it. Also, you know, if I listen to the the radio programs all over the world, you know, if I listen to radio programs in Turkey, they're not playing Western popular music. If I listen to radio from Greece, they're not playing Western popular. So there are some really thriving, vital musical cultures alive and well that, that are not just all about European music. And Cameron, that reminds me of something that you've, you've spoken about, learning how other people think and feel. So are, are you suggesting that by listening to the music of other cultures that we begin to learn how they think and feel? Or are you saying more that we, we need to actually interact with people? Or, or maybe both in, in combination? Well, the music is a great stepping stone. You know, if I hadn't been going to hear Ike and Tina Turner in the local roller skating rink when I was 14 years old, I wouldn't have picked up on the way African-Americans feel. But that being said, it helps to go a step further and learn languages as well as music. When I came back from my first mountaineering expedition in Peru, fascinated by the Inca culture, Quechua-speaking people, I enrolled in linguistics. I ended up going through three universities all the way up to working on a doctorate in linguistics so that I could learn the Inca language better and learn 
after that, I, I, I had those tools. And when I was living in Greece, I was living with my girlfriend family who spoke just Greek. And I learned fast. Um, and later, to learn Arabic, I brought all those tools. So it's the mixture uh, for learning. Learn the music, learn to play it, learn to dance with somebody from that culture, start learning the language, and then finally go back and dance some more with them and do some projects with them. You know, like our, our musical ambassadors all over the world now, they're really active in Uganda right now. They're paying for the older folks to teach the younger folks the tribal dances and songs. And then they're showcasing the dance. And then they're having events where they can all just get up and boogie together, you know. Tribes that were like, because of colonial era legacy, colonial era legacies or whatever, they were fighting each other in the Congo. Now they're dancing together. Um, and it wouldn't have occurred to the Red Cross to like run that program. But it's just as important for the human soul as the as the uh, shelter and the food and the nourishment because people wither away and die if their if their soul has no meaning or purpose left and no way to feel good. So yeah, it's a mix of all those different stages. I get frustrated with my American friends who say, "Well, if you don't learn a language as a child, you can't learn it." And I know for a fact as an adult that I can learn languages 10 times faster than a child. I may not get the pronunciation quite as perfect as I would have if I was on a playground at six years old. But in terms of learning the whole verb structure and how a language works and how to speak it, an adult with intention can learn a lot of languages really deeply and then, of course, how people feel in that culture uh, starts to become familiar. And that's a whole other cross-cultural soul education, which benefits ourselves and everyone around us. So that cross-cultural education, and you've referred to soul and heart education, what are some practical things people can do to start cultivating that? And, 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 and I'm referring mainly to people who don't have the resources to travel to other countries, but who would like to do that, like where they are. What are some practical things people could do to cultivate that? There are refugee communities in every town in America. Recently, I was visiting some women in South Denver who were refugees from Iraq and who actually stayed in our house in Boulder for a few months. And then they moved to Denver because their ability to create a new life was better there. And I was uh, walking out of the door and I ran into somebody I knew. It was an Albanian gypsy guy that had played the clarinet and I had built a band around him 
years earlier, but he had such an alcoholic, violent part of him after having been kept in Turkish prisons for so long that it was impossible to to be his co-musician and friend. Uh, I saw him walking down the sidewalk and I'm like, wow, what are you doing? How are you, you know? And we were both totally friendly to each other. And uh, he said he was delivering food to Iraqi refugees in that community. And it just made me cry, you know, because I knew he come from such a difficult place. And here he was giving. And of course, he was learning a little bit about Iraqi culture in the process. That's one idea. And as you look back on your life and all of these relationships that you've developed with people all over the world, what is one lesson that you would like to share with everybody related to building relationships, resolving the conflicts that arise between and among people and having those kinds of heart connections that you've talked about. What is one thing you would like the world to know that you've discovered? Well, I've discovered that although humans in their verbal minds love to hate and, you know, liberals are guilty of that too, but we all know that it's really important to go with the good, go with the love. But what I'd like to say is that when I sign a letter uh, a few years ago, instead of just writing love Cameron, I put love, love, love Cameron. Because, you know, you can go out and shoot somebody and the TV cameras will show up and it'll be on the news. And violence, you know, makes the news immediately. But acts of love take longer to be visible. And you might think, oh, this is frustrating. I'm doing good. I'm helping myself and others and nothing's happening. My message to everybody is keep doing it because at some point the uh, cosmic consciousness of the universe and humanity will pick up on it and they'll start shining it back on you. That's where patience becomes a virtue. But I feel like I can guarantee that if you spend a while persistently sending out the love, you'll start living in a field of love that's not just your own anymore, but it's shared a shared world of loving, kindness, giving, helping. Yes, it's a reflection of all those years you spent consistently sending out love to others. But at that point, it takes wings of its own. And you don't have to ever wonder or work at it anymore. Because the flood of beautiful things that start materializing in your own life will be undeniable, unmistakable, 
it's so real and it's just so wonderful. I mean, here I am, I, I'm suddenly just a month ago, I found out I'm in stage four cancer. I'm probably not even likely to be here um, a week or two from now, but I am so bathed in this love field that I have no concerns, no regrets, nothing left undone, no fear of death, no, no, I don't really like pain and suffering a whole lot. So I'm doing what I can medically to alleviate that. But, but as for, you know, the absolute beauty of the uh, shared world of people that know that just shoveling out the love as this so much more benefit than shoveling out the violence, even though the violence will get the headline. The love wins by thousands of times in the long run. You previously told us about being in a Peruvian village and this idea of a fear of death was a, a concept that the folks in the village weren't aware of. And and just listening to you talk about your death, uh, it, it really seems so different from how we sometimes frame that in our culture, right? Where we're, we are afraid of death, or we, we battle against this disease, or we fight death. It's all very conflictual rhetoric, but you're in a different place, clearly. Yeah, I feel so blessed, thanks to all of you sharing all this energy of... of uh, ecstatic love really you know i i'm not hurting for anything whether i'm alive or dead and it doesn't mean i believe in some afterlife particularly either i'm open to possibilities but i don't have any expectations so camera i'm curious do you have any last word you would like to share before we end this conversation Keep that light shining, keep that little light shining. Keep dancing, keep drumming, keep singing. And if people send you love, if they say, wow, you're really cool, I love you a lot, that is wonderful. Don't get all modest and say, oh no, I don't deserve it, you know, because that shuts your own heart down. You need to just say, thank you, brother, sister. I feel your love. And you'll feel your heart dilate at the moment that you say thank you. I guess that's what people mean by gratitude, being a healthy thing. But when your own heart dilates and lets in more love, if you're not used to that, it'll actually feel a little scary and painful. Your heart's not used to being wide open like an Egyptian's. So be prepared to just keep feeling it growing and growing and growing. But dance, sing, play. Sacred flirtation amongst all human beings. That's one of my favorite uh, things to do is I, I don't violate anyone's space, but I constantly flirt with them. 
of work. Musician and ambassador for peace, Cameron Powers. A few days after we recorded this interview, he died on February 15, 2022. To conclude the program, we have some of his music. This is a song called All the Moons. Cameron is singing and playing the oud, an Arabic stringed instrument. That's Cameron Powers from his 2015 recording, Cameron Powers Project. You can find out more about his music and about the nonprofit Musical Ambassadors of Peace at the website CameronPowers.com. Thanks for listening to Well, That Went Sideways. We produce new episodes twice a month. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts and on our website, sidewayspod.org. We also have information on our guests and links to more conflict resolution resources at the website. That's sidewayspod.org. Our program is produced by Mary Zinn, Jess Rao, Norma Johnson, Alexis Miles, and me, Sam Fuqua. Our theme music is by Mike Stewart, and this podcast is a partnership with the Conflict Center, a Denver-based nonprofit that provides practical skills and training for addressing everyday conflicts. Find out more at conflictcenter.org.